0: I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. One uh, additional thing I want to emphasize, I heard Kaylee talk about um, our Ash Wednesday service, which is Wednesday from 6.30 to 7.30. It's the beginning of Lent. Uh, One of the ways that we observe Lent as a church is a corporate fast. Fasting is voluntarily giving... Food, particularly on this side of the resurrection, it's not so much grief and mourning. It's much more a physical expression of a spiritual desire. You're basically saying, God, I, I want you more than I want to eat. That's uh, what fasting essentially is. And I want to encourage all of you to look for an opportunity to engage. If you're physically able to fast, uh, please do. You can give up a type of food, you can give up Dessert, or chocolate, or coffee—the you know, six Mondays between uh, Lent and Easter—you can give up a whole day of eating. That's it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. You can do that, um, but I would encourage you to look for an opportunity uh, to fast. Uh, again, it's—I um, there, there, don't get how fasting works. I don't understand it. The Bible doesn't go into it at all, but it is one of the ways that God works in our lives and. He actually uses it outside of our life in the lives of other people. Again, I don't understand how all of it works, but there are certain things. I've heard people say, and I've found it to be true in my own life, there are certain things that God does when we fast that he doesn't seem to do otherwise. That's not magic, but there's something about that physical expression of saying, even something as vital as food, I'm willing to give up. It moves him in certain ways. And so I want to strongly encourage you to look for an opportunity, if you're physically able, to fast sometime in those six weeks between this Wednesday and Easter Sunday. Uh, Specifically, what I would love you praying for, we talk here at Stonebridge about finding your Marietta. It's a recognition that all of us are sent as missionaries. Uh, that God has planted us somewhere, and wherever it is that God has planted you, I want you to spend the next six weeks praying specifically for his kingdom to come in that place. For you, it may be very geographical. It may be a school or a neighborhood. It may be a bit more business community, or God has called me to a certain type of people, a people group. That's great. Whatever you would say, that's my mission field. That's the place where God has put me. We want you praying for the next six weeks uh, persistently and consistently for that Marietta, trusting that even as you're fasting, one of the things you're praying is, God, I pray that you would make the people in this place hungry for you. As I'm physically hungry, I'm praying that you would make them spiritually hungry leading up to Easter. So again, strongly encourage you to look for an opportunity to do that over the next six weeks. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is now the king of all Israel. He's established Jerusalem as his capital city. Last week we saw him go and get the ark and bring it to Jerusalem. So the ark has been MIA for about 50 years, since uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. We haven't seen it, heard about it, anything. And David says, I want that in my capital city. The ark is not just the box where you've got the Ten Commandments. It's also considered the throne of God on earth. The place where those two angel wings come together, those are called cherubim. The place where those wings come together is called the mercy seat, and God said to dwell there. That's said to be his throne, and so getting the ark and bringing it to Jerusalem, to his capital city, it's kind of symbolic of of David saying, God, I want you at the center of what we're doing as a nation. And so that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 7. The ark is now in Jerusalem. David is in uh, that tent. After the king, after David was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So, uh, we don't know exactly when, chronologically when this happened. It's not early. It's probably maybe the last ten years of David's reign. We don't know exactly. The material is grouped thematically at this point in Samuel, not chronologically. So, this is because the ark is now in Jerusalem. We're seeing this is what David's desire is with the ark, is he wants to build God up. A place. He wants to build him a house, a, a temple, a sanctuary, we would say. He's looking at his palace and he's looking at this tent and going, that's not, it's not right. It's not right for me to have a nicer house than God has. That's what he's saying, essentially. Again, we don't know exactly when this happens. We know in 2 Samuel 5, uh, another king, Hiram, has said, I'm gonna build you a palace, David, and their their reigns overlap during the last ten years of David's life, so probably towards the end of his life, towards the end of his reign, after his palace has been built, uh he says here he has rest from all his enemies. That hasn't happened yet. He's still got a lot of people that he has to fight. We'll see that in second Samuel chapter eight and ten. So again this is a this is from the this is sometime in the future, um kind of chronological I want to build God a nice house. Uh, in 1 Kings 8, referring to this, um, intention of David, God says, you've done well to think this. You, that, that does, you've done well to have this desire. So God honors the desire that David has to build him this temple as well. And he goes to Nathan, who's a prophet, and said, here's what I'm thinking. And Nathan said, that's a great idea. Let's, let's do that. But, but that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? No. I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? No. No. Both of those questions, uh, no, is the implied answer. So Nathan has said to David, that's a great idea, go do it. And now in a dream, God says, time out. David has done well to have this desire in his heart. His intentions are good, but it's not for him to build. No, it's, it's not. I've never asked for a temple, never asked for a palace, never asked for a nice house. And David's not the one to do that for me. Why not? David is a man after God's own heart. Why would it not be? Again, if this desire is good, if he's done well to have the desire, why would God say, no, I don't want you to do that? This is from First Chronicles. That you get a little bit different angle on some of the same events in First Chronicles than you do in Second uh, Samuel. And you can see there, David says, God spoke to me. He's talking to his son Solomon, who would build the temple. We don't see this interaction with God in Second Samuel, but David says to his son Solomon, this is what God told me. I had this desire. I've done well to have this desire. But God said, "I honestly, I'd killed too many people. I had, I'd had, i shed too much blood before him. That Could that be a word of judgment? Maybe. Maybe David was excessive. We'll see a couple of times where he seems to kind of cross the line in terms of the way he's executing justice. And maybe it moves towards vengeance. Maybe there's a little judgment there. I don't know. I just think it's kind of what maybe people would say in today's world It's, it's just... David was stepping outside of his lane. That wasn't part of his calling to build the temple. He was a man of war. That's who he was. He was a warrior and he was a fighter. And his particular flavor of shepherding Israel really was about defeating Israel's enemies. If you go back and read Joshua, the second half of Joshua is a boring, boring section of the Bible because it reads like a survey document you. And then when you read the end of Joshua and you read Judges, you realize they didn't hold the land. There were places they never took, and there were places they were took that were then taken back from them because of their disobedience. They never acquired and possessed and occupied all of the land that God had promised to them. They were living less than what God had given to them. And a large part of what David does is he expands the boundaries of Israel to what God originally intended. That's a large part of what his We'll call it ministry. His calling, his deal is as the shepherd of Israel. It's to drive out the Philistines and to drive out the other occupiers of the land and to establish a place of safety and peace and rest for the people. And so what God says to him is, you're a man of war, your son's going to be a man of peace. Your job is to fight, your son's job is going to be to build me a temple. I don't think one is better than the other at all. Again, I think maybe can hear a little word of judgment there. I'm just not positive that that... Word of judgment is actually in that. I think it's more just a statement of fact, a statement of reality. David, this is your calling. This is what you are to do. And building the temple as good and right as your heart and your desire is, it's just not for you. That's for your son who's going to be a man of peace and a man of rest. So regardless, it's not for David to do that. And God says, I've never asked for one. i never asked anybody for a house. Again, great desire. It's not high on my list. I live in this tent. Here's a, re- a reproduction. This is uh, based on a blueprint. Blueprint. It's not super impressive. It's highly portable. It's mobile. The whole thing can be taken down and carried, and it was. It was taken down and carried from place to place to place. There were three groups of Levites, and their job was to carry the fence and to carry the tent and to carry the holy things and the most holy things, and that's what they did. It was a portable, mobile... Um, Sanctuary, if you want to call it that, we were we were on the interstate some this week. A lot of guys with the, you know what a fifth wheel is; those pull behind—that's what that is. God's a, hes in a, That's what it is. It's a trailer. It just doesn't have a truck. They pulled them on carts. I mean, that's what that is. That's where God lived. He said, "I'm mobile. My people move, and I move with them. And I move, and my people move with me. I don't need a fancy palace." Verse eight. Now then, so God says to David through Nathan, no, great idea, it's not for you. No, and now God is going to say yes. Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on the earth, and now I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning, and I've done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you, David, rest from all your enemies. So what you have here is is God says to David, No, good idea. Love the heart. No, not for you. Now here here's what I am going to do for you. First, let me remind you of what I've done for you. I've called you from being a shepherd of sheep to being a shepherd of people. I've cut off all your enemies from you. We've won. We've won all the battles. Abraham goes all the way back to Abraham. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. So David's in pretty exclusive company for God to say that to him. I'm going to make your name great. That's the, the first book in and the, the last book in. And I'm going to cut off all your enemies. I'm going to give you rest. And then in the middle... He says, here's what I'm going to do for the people. So the things I'm doing for you as the king are really for the sake of the people who I've given to you. I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. I'm going to do those things so that my people, Israel, the people you're leading, so they can have a place. I'm going to plant them. They're going to have peace. They're not going to be oppressed anymore. They're not going to be disturbed anymore. That's what's happened. If you read the book of Judges, that's all it is, are the Israelites being disturbed. A lot of it's because of their own doing. But there's no peace. There's no rest. They're constantly fighting. They're constantly either being attacked and having to defend themselves or they're trying to take land that God has given them. They're attacking somebody else. Same thing in the book of Samuel. We see that same dynamic at play and God says, not anymore. We're going to establish these boundaries. They're going to be secure. I'm going to allow my people to flourish in peace. This next paragraph is one of the most important paragraphs in all of the Old Testament. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and the rest and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish His kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be His father, and He will be my son. When He does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Agreement, in this case, that God enters into with David and with David's future sons and grandsons and great-great-grandsons on down the line. It's a Davidic covenant because it's entered into with David. And there's a prophetic piece to it. God is looking in the future saying, here's what I'm going to do for you. And it's all based on this play on words. David says to God, the chapter opens with David saying, God, I want to build you a house. And what God says is, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. David says, I want to build you a house, a temple. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. It's the same word house with two different meanings. There's that play on words. David goes to God and says, this is what I want to build for you. And God says, no, this is actually what I'm going to build for you. And then all of the things that follow, the three sentences that follow, are an unpacking of what it means for God to build a house for David. And as with almost every prophecy in the Old Testament, there is a near-term fulfillment that we may say is historical. You may say it's literal, it's close in time to the prophecy given. And then there's a farther term, fulfillment. You may call it spiritual. You may call it eternal. It's something in the future. and almost always has to do with the Messiah, with Jesus. And so in the near term, these words are fulfilled by Solomon, who's one of David's kids. Solomon is chosen to be David's successor to the throne, Solomon is the one who built the temple. You can go through and read all of that in uh, 1 Kings, and you can see it in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles as well. There's a point at which uh, God disciplines Solomon. Solomon has 700 wives, and he starts chasing other gods, and and God says to him, all right, I'm not going to take my love from you. I'm not going to reject you completely, but there's going to be discipline for what you've done. And so like the kingdom actually is split. Uh, Ten and two. Ten tribes and two tribes because of Solomon's disobedience. But Solomon dies even in his disobedience. He's not completely rejected like Saul was. You can see the literal fulfillment, the historical fulfillment, the near-term fulfillment of all of those promises in the life of Solomon. And when you look to the New Testament... You can see all of those same promises being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And you'll notice there on the screen the different scriptures that are quoted in the New Testament. Look, at, They're from all over the New Testament. They're from Jesus about himself, the writer of Hebrews, the apostles Peter, Paul. They all recognize this passage as foundational for understanding who Jesus is. Maybe with the exception of Isaiah 58... This paragraph has more to do with shaping our understanding of Jesus' identity than anything else in the Old Testament. It's what when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, this is where it comes from. I will be his father and he will be my son. When the, the, the resurrection seen as proof of Jesus, Jesus as the Messiah, this is where it comes from. A kingdom that will last forever. Even the idea of discipline, Jesus was not disciplined for his own disobedience. He never sinned, but even Jesus underwent discipline. You see that in Hebrews. All of these promises are fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. Again, it's one of the most important paragraphs in all of the Old Testament because it paints a picture of the Messiah, and the early Christians saw that as well. The first Christians were all Jewish. They knew this. And over the course of hundreds of years around this paragraph, expectations began to form about who the Messiah would be and what according to this paragraph. A couple of things I want you looking at before we dive into what uh, hopefully is the main takeaway um, for us. One, this uh, Nathan missing it. Second time we've seen that. We saw it in 1 Samuel 16 with Samuel missing it. Another prophet Samuel goes to Jesse's house. He's looking for David, for Saul's successor. He sees the oldest, Eliab, and he looks like a king. And he says, it's got to be him. And God speaks to him and says, you're judging wrong. You're looking at the externals. That's not what I look at. I look at the heart. And it turns out that David is the one who God has chosen. He's not even the house at the time. And here we have a prophet who says to David, sure, go ahead. It's a great idea to build the temple. You can do that. And in both cases, we have God... Correcting, we'll say redirecting, maybe that's a better word, redirecting the prophet. I, that gives me encouragement, and I hope it encourages you as well. Not that prophets miss it, but that God is invested in our obedience. And God is invested in the fulfilling of his own agenda. I don't know, sometimes that when you think about the will of God or being faithful to God, if you feel like you're walking on a tightrope and it's up to you to, to maintain your balance. And if you lean too far one way or the other, you're going to fall off and you're done. What you see here in 1 Samuel 16 and in 2 Samuel 7 is God is absolutely not just able but willing to step in and say, Hey, your heart's good. It's great. It's well for you. You've done well to have this desire. Samuel, I can see why you think it's Eliab, but it's not. David, I can see why you want to build the temple, but it's not you to do that. It's not for you to do that. So, Nathan, you've got to go back and... Tell them there's this willingness for, of God that we see to, to, to take initiative and to redirect his people. I hope that gives you some level of confidence and freedom as you try to live faithfully before him. He is more invested in your obedience than even you are. And if your heart is open to him, he will absolutely redirect you. I think it's fine to move forward and say, hey, this seems like a great idea to me. In Acts we see this, it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit, and so we move ahead. Capable of saying to us, Hey, that you thought the light was green, but it was red. You thought I was saying, Turn right, I want you to turn left. And I don't think it's a strong rebuke to Samuel. I don't think it's a strong rebuke to Nathan. I think it's just a, a gentle correction, a course correction. And again, I hope that encourages you. Thinking about this covenant that God makes with David. Recognize it's not payment for anything David has done. Lots of guys built temples to their gods, and they built temples to their gods so their god would then do something nice for them. What you have here is David saying, I have a desire to build my god a palace, a temple, and God saying, no, you're not going to do that. Here's what I'm going to do for you instead. It's grace. It's not payment. It's not reward. And when you, we look next week at David's response, he has words, but they're stumbling. He doesn't know what to say. He's blown away. He says, God, who who am I that you would do this for me? He wasn't angling. He wasn't leveraging God when he went to him, I think, with a pure desire and said, this is what I want to do. And God says, no, that's not what we're going to do. Here's what I'm going to do for you. And it's more than David could have imagined. He says to him, how could you do this for me? More than he could ask or imagine. We have a God who gives back to us, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. We see the grace of God in this covenant that he makes with David. David goes with a pure heart and says, here's what I want to do for you. And God says, no, here's what I'm going to do for you. Just because I'm going to do it for you. And when things are rest on God's grace, it's solid ground for us. If it rests on anything else, that other it's all shaky. That's why we encourage so much for people to have a strong sense of who they are in the Lord. That your identity is primarily you. His choosing you to be a part of his family. That's solid. That's not shakable. Your performance is shakable. What people think of you is shakeable. Your abilities are shakable. Your gifts and your skills, all of those things are shakable. What's not shakeable is God's choosing of you. And that's why it's so important for your identity to be, to be rooted and grounded in that choosing, in that adoption as a son or as a daughter. It's the only thing solid upon which to build your life. Here's what we're going to close with. When I read this chapter... What jumps out to me the most is God's intense and persistent desire to be with his people. What God, God doesn't want a, a palace. He wants a people to be with. That is his desire. You see it in Genesis 1 and 2. He creates everything that you see for the sole purpose of a suitable habitat for us so that we can be with him. That's what he wants. He wants relationship. And then in Genesis 3 everything gets blown up because of sin and from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 God is fixing the problem. And in Revelation 21 and 22 we see the solution. And you can see it here it'll be up on the screen what Jesus or excuse me what God says in Revelation 21 of verse 3. And I heard a loud voice saying now. Like in my mind what God is saying is finally. Finally. The dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's what God has been desiring from Genesis all the way through Revelation. C.S. Lewis says, when we die, that's just the end of chapter 1. Forgiveness of sins is incredibly important, but it's the means to an end. The end is relationship with him. God desires to dwell with us, and you know that in your head. But do you know that? That what he wants when you're 60 and when you're 18 and when you're 75, when you're on your deathbed and when you're standing at an altar and when you're, sta- when you're working your job, what he wants more than anything is to be with you. The idea of the tabernacle, God living in a camper, he's a mobile God. He's not a come to me, God. He's a I'm going to you, God. That's the incarnation. He doesn't sit in heaven and say, they're going to figure it out. He takes on skin and becomes one of us. Why? So that relationship with him is actually possible. Can you imagine the God of the universe saying, yes, I will live in a tent? That's all I want. I don't need a palace. I'm looking for a people. The reason God is in this mobile tent, he says to the Israelites in the desert, They wander for 40 years because they're disobedient, because they don't trust him. Remember the whole story with the spies? Twelve spies go to the land of Canaan. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, hey, it's great. We can take it. Ten of them say, those guys are big and they're going to squish us. We don't want it. And so what God says is, you don't want it. You don't have to have it. All of you will die in the desert. That's what you want. You're afraid to go into the land. I'll give you what you want. Your kids will inherit it, but you won't. And God, even though the people are wandering as an expression of judgment, God continues to be with them. It's amazing to me that God says, you are wandering out of because you were disobedient. You're wandering because you didn't trust me. You're wandering because you had no faith. And yet, even in disciplining you, I'm going to continue to be with you. I'm going to move around with you. And that's what he does. And that's what he continues to do. Solomon builds a temple, and it's great. It's ordained by God. It's an amazing building. If the numbers are accurate, it was worth tens and tens. Incredibly uh, elaborate, luxurious building, all built according to a blueprint God had gives. And at the same time, I feel like it was uh, a move away from God's ultimate desire. I think he's more of a camper God than he is a castle God. The temple says, come to me. Here's the place. It's right here. This is the box. And if you want to meet with me, you've got to come to the box. Get in your car and come to Jerusalem because that's where I am. And by the time of Jesus, we've seen that, that worship has not just become centralized and localized. It's become ritualized. He says in John chapter 4 to a Samaritan woman, they're arguing about worship. And she says, our box is better than your box. You think that mountain is the right place to worship? And we think it's this mountain. And Jesus says, Ah time out. A time is coming. It doesn't matter about the mountains anymore. What God is looking for is people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He's not looking for a palace. He's looking for a people. He's a God who's on the move and He's on the move because He desires to be with you. Do you know that this morning? God's desire deep and persistent is to be with you. When you look at his division of heaven in Revelation 21 and 22, it's all relational. It's all relational. Read the chapters. It sounds just like Genesis 1 and 2, where God set everything up. He created everything that we can see so we would have a suitable habitat in which to live in order to foster a relationship with him. Revelation 21 and 22, we see God saying, Now, finally, the dwelling with God is with people. Finally, I get to be with people unhindered. We've taken care of sin. We've taken care of death. We've taken care of... understood. They're done. But the people who desire relationship with me we're finally able to dwell together. We're finally able to work together. We're finally able to worship together. All of those things coming together relationally. Read Revelation 21 and 22. That's where everything is going. His desire is to dwell with you. 1 Corinthians uh, 3 and 6 say, Individually we're a temple of God and corporately we're a temple of God. This thing that David wanted to build. God says, No, it's It's you. Bo's going to sing a song in a minute coming from Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where's the house you're going to build for me? It's all mine. You're going to build me a box? Doesn't matter how nice it is. It's not where I live. My desire is to be with you and where you are, there I am. God is not desperate. God is not needy. But he has an intense desire to be with his people. To be among people who desire to be with him. And so that's my question. To you this morning. Are you the place? Are you a person? In whom God would feel. Welcomed. If you need a picture. You can think of Joseph and Mary. Going to Bethlehem. And there's no room for them. At the end. There's no space. Revelation 3.20. That classic. Verse. Behold I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will come in. will open the door. I'll come in and eat with him or her. And. You'll eat with me. And we think of that passage as an invitation to people who are not yet Christians, and it is, but recognize that virch He was saying to his own people, is there room for me? That's the iconic painting of that picture there up on the screen. Notice there is no door handle on the outside. That was the artist's understanding. that Jesus can't open the door. It can only be opened to him from the inside. He's saying to us as followers of him, is there room for me? Don't hear that as guilt. Hear that as invitation. That's what he wants more than anything else. Absolutely, he wants to forgive you of your sins because he wants relationship with you and sins get in the way. Absolutely, he wants to heal your body. Absolutely, he wants to deliver you from what oppresses you. All Yes, and he wants all of those things as expressions of relationship, which is what he wants more than anything else. is to live with you, to dwell with you, and have you live and dwell with him. Is that your deepest desire this morning? Can you hear Jesus knocking on the door of your life? Don't hear guilt. Hear invitation. Hear the God of the universe knocking. We live in an affluent society. So many things compete for our time, our attention, and our affection, and many of them are good. And many of them choke out his work in our life. He's so patient with us. He's so persistent. He's so loving. He's so gracious. We know he'll be there next week. And we know he'll be there next month. And we know he'll be there next year. And all of those things are true. And yet we presume upon that grace so often. We don't recognize his deep desire to be with us. And we don't create within our own heart space to be with him I'm not telling you to have a quiet time I'm saying is there any space in your heart for him right now I'm not asking about your salvation I'm saying is there any room can you hear him knocking as we enter into Lent would you be willing to make space for him for some of you you need to get up earlier for some of you you need to turn off the TV For some of you, you need to stay up later. All of those things are an expression of your desire to be with Him. Will you begin to do those things? Which, As a deer pants for water, so our souls long for Him. For many of us, we read that and it sounds poetic, but it does not resonate in our hearts as a true statement. Do I really desire the presence of God the way a deer needs and desires water? Could you pray, God, would you make that true of me over these next six weeks? Would you so stir a desire in my own heart, a hunger and thirst for you in my own heart, that that would be true? That with David, I could say, better are is one day with you. One day. Than a thousand elsewhere. Not guilt. It's an invitation it's a challenge I would beg you, I would implore you over these next six weeks. Ask yourself, I know he wants to be with me. Do I want to be with him? If God is saying, where's, where, where are the people among whom I can dwell? Are you raising your hand and saying, right here, here's one of them. It's not about how sinless you are or how righteous you are. It's about your desire. Will you respond to Jesus knocking at the door of your life? Let's pray. Both going to sing a song and I don't want you to sing it with them you just stay in your seat and let this song I hope become a prayer for you It's super simple it's old many of you know it. It's an invitation to God saying, Here, let let me be one. Let me be a place where the camper stops. Some of you have never made a decision to follow Jesus. What you need to hear this morning is what He wants from you is relationship, He will forgive you of your sins. He may heal your body. He will deliver you from what oppresses you. He will make all of your life better. 100%. What He wants is your affection. Your attention. He's looking for a relationship with you. Eternal life is knowing Him. If you're interested in that. Open the door. Invite Him in. Many of you. Many of us. We've already made a decision to follow Him. And that knock of His Spirit in our own life, it's it's so faint. There's so many things yelling at us in our own life for our attention, for our affection, for our time. In the next couple of moments, I want to strongly encourage you, quiet your own heart and mind. Don't think about your quiet time. Don't jump into that. I want you listening for the knock of God, the knock of the Spirit, the knock of Jesus in your own life. And then simply open the door in your own heart. God, my desire is to be with you. I recognize your desire is to be with me and my desire is to be with you. I want to be one in whom you dwell. If eternal life is knowing you, then I'm in. And I want to know you more. You have to show me what that looks like in my life. But right now on February 11th at 12, 12 in the afternoon, I'm saying, God, my deepest desire is to be with you. Some of you can't pray that prayer with integrity. And so what I would encourage you to do is say, God, I desire for that to be my desire. But if I'm honest, it's not yet. I can't say as a deer pants for water, so I long for you. I wish I could, but I can't. Would you ask him to stir a hunger and a thirst in your own heart? You don't have to work that up on your own. God, would you stir a hunger in me for you? There's going to be steps of obedience you have to take, but God will spark you. writer of ecclesiastes says god has placed eternity in all of our hearts and what i'm encouraging you to do is recognize that eternity the forever that god has placed in your heart the part of you that longs for him and to say god feed that in me awaken that in me The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, they're choking out. They're drowning out your knock at the door of my heart. Give me ears to hear you this morning. Let this song be a prayer, please.